May is Fibromyalgia Awareness Month. It's important to raise awareness about this chronic and often debilitating invisible illness known as fibromyalgia. This month-long campaign is an opportunity to educate people about the symptoms, causes, and treatments of fibromyalgia, as well as to show support for those living with these and other related invisible illnesses. Through increased awareness, we can work towards better understanding and management of fibromyalgia and ultimately improve the quality of life for those who are affected by it. And now on to this week's episode. This is the Conquering Your Fibromyalgia podcast. I am your host, Dr. Michael Lenz. Living with fibromyalgia can be one of deep despair, hopelessness, and it can hit you to the deepest parts of your core. Much of the podcast is focused on ways to live healthier and better with fibromyalgia, but I recognize that not everyone is getting better. And to that point, how do we cope with that? On this week's episode, we will have a special guest discussing this in much more detail and trying to gain some wisdom and understanding as we reflect on going through pain and suffering. For those of you who are listening to the podcast for the first time, I am Dr. Michael Lenz, a pediatrician and internal medicine doctor. That means I see patients from birth all the way to old age. I also am a lifestyle medicine physician and a diplomat of the Board of Clinical Lipidology. My goal is to inform and inspire and equip those who are living with fibromyalgia, those who have loved ones living with fibromyalgia, and physicians and other healthcare providers who want to learn more about this very frustrating problem. I also am author of the book, Conquering Your Fibromyalgia, Real Answers and Real Solutions for Real Pain. Luke Thompson is our guest for the podcast. He has worn several hats in his career. He started out as a philosophy professor. Then he received his Master's of Divinity, where he went on to pastor in Ottawa, Canada. And then he received a call to go back to serve as a philosophy professor. He also is the author of the book, Your Life Has Meaning. He is one of the wisest persons I know, and I hope that you will gain from some of the great wisdom he's had as he tries to share some insights into the difficult problem of living with pain and suffering, especially chronic pain and suffering, as those with fibromyalgia have. And now on to this week's episode. Living with this suffering of chronic pain can be very challenging, making sense of it all, and trying to have hope can be difficult. In your book, you talk about how we think about life, and listeners of the podcast come from all different philosophical and theological frameworks. We often get caught up in everyday life and don't take time to consider the bigger overarching picture of life. Can you share just some general different spiritual paradigms, uh, the ways to understand the world and how that applies to enduring suffering and pain? Absolutely, Mike. And thank you very much for having me on. I'm very excited to be here with you. And I'm very glad that we can make this happen. This has been a while that we've been trying to set this up. Yeah. So just in regards to different spiritual paradigms, I think one 
kind of, if we're going to just boil this down as much as possible into something easy to, to wrap our heads around, yet at the same time, kind of understand the implications. There was an atheist philosopher named Jean-Paul Sartre, famous existentialist atheist philosopher. And he basically separated philosophical and for that matter, spiritual worldviews into two categories in one of his kind of infamous essays. And what he said was he compared his atheism to St. Augustine and St. Augustine's Christianity, so his theism. And Sartre said that the big difference between him and Augustine was that Augustine, once upon a time, said that essence precedes existence. And what Augustine meant by that is that if there is a God, then the essence, your essence, my essence, existed before we actually physically existed in this world. We might think of it something like this. Imagine you've got a carpenter that's making a chair. So if the carpenter is making the chair before he even begins work on the chair, does the chair actually exist? Well, we might say it hasn't been brought into physical existence, but the essence of the chair already exists, right? Where where would you say that's at? It's in the mind of the carpenter, right? The carpenter has in his mind the chair that he wants to create, and then he goes through the act of bringing it into existence, right? And so he's got the chair in his mind, and he's got reasons that he wants to make the chair. There's purpose behind it. There's all these reasons that he's bringing the chair into existence, and it's all right there with the essence of the chair before he actually creates it. Sartre says, well, if God does not exist, then that means Augustine has to be wrong with this essence precedes existence. Instead, what must be the case then is that existence precedes essence. And so he kind of switches those around. And what Sartre meant by that is, well, there can't be a God who has first kind of thought of us and brought us into existence. Instead, we just come into this world existing. And there was nothing before. There was no mind that wanted to bring us into this world. We just now exist. And now that we brought ourselves or now that we find ourselves existing, we now create our own essence. And we're going to do this through the choices we make. And so Sartre was very big into taking seriously the choices that we make as human beings. And this feels very empowering, this idea that, well, I can just kind of shape who I am and my own identity through all the choices that I make. But once we do that, once we kind of take this step and say that my essence is something that I shape myself, then what we're actually saying, the real consequence of this is that we're saying then that my existence really doesn't have any transcendent meaning to begin with, right? Instead, you know, an evolutionary atheistic explanation would say, I'm just an accident of the universe, right? Uh, I'm just kind of the product of some determined causes or something like that. But there was no mind that brought me into this universe. And so I come into this universe with no purpose, no meaning, no transcendent value. What this also means then is that when we're looking at suffering, and we're looking at pain, these two worldviews then, Sartre's atheistic worldview versus St. Augustine's Christian worldview, what we have then between the two of these things is it's not just that you and I would have an essence and then be brought into this world, but pain and suffering has this same thing. In Sartre's atheistic framework, all pain and suffering is pointless. 
There's no meaning behind it. There's no purpose behind it. We are just creatures that exist. And then the pain and suffering is just a consequence of it. And there's no rhyme or reason behind it. That's, that's just the way life is, right? On Augustine's level, though, there's certainly pain and suffering, right? And we take that very seriously, but it's meaningful pain and suffering. Somehow there's some larger story. There's some reason that we've been brought into this world. There's, there's a reason that the creator has created us. And there's a reason that he's put us in this world, including the context that we find ourselves in. And so our purpose in life isn't then to create our own meaning. Instead, in Augustine's worldview, our purpose is to find out what that meaning is, right? That we know we have, that there's some transcendent purpose behind it. And life's goal is to uh, discover that. And that goes along with the pain and the suffering that we're going through in life. This is not meaningless. It's not pointless. There's some reason behind it all. And then we're striving to find that reason. As opposed to Sartre, where it's just kind of pointless. There's there's no rhyme or reason behind it. And I just have to come to grips with the meaninglessness of it all. So that's maybe one way of, of setting the two apart. I know we kind of just dove right into the deep waters <laughs> yeah. pretty quick there. Yeah. yeah. And there's so many different levels in between. And a lot of people often may go back and forth between these, I right. think. And haven't even put a lot of thought even to these situations. Uh, probably both groups may agree that, well, there is a function, pain as a function, you know, to alert us that we could be injuring ourselves and those kind of things. And the attribution of that from a very uh, simple standpoint, maybe time, chance, or there is a designer behind this there's a creator who put all of these in there and then there's a suffering that can come across as meaningless because why you know why am i going through this in your book you talk about the word meta narrative and that's not a word that most people are using on a casual conversation never use that on my podcast before but Tell us more about what a meta narrative is and why everyone needs to consider it, even if they don't consciously subscribe to one. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I want to briefly interrupt the podcast to inform you about the Fibromyalgia Starter Pack, which is now available. If you are new to this podcast, it categorizes the episodes in a way that is more beneficial for those new to fibromyalgia. You can access the link in the show notes to learn more. Yeah, so I think the the concept of a meta narrative is an extremely powerful idea. And so again, if we're kind of maybe thinking about Augustine's essence preceding existence, right? So you've got God who has in mind something that he is bringing into the world, right? And so what the meta narrative is then, it's this overarching story, we might say, or this overarching grand idea that we would fit all the other ideas into. Maybe one way of thinking about it would be like this. So imagine you are reading a really big book. What's what's the biggest fiction book that you've read, Mike? <laughs> or just oh, name goodness. a big one that you. That you I, I just got done yeah. reading Gone with the Wind. Okay, uh, yeah. I did a podcast on that, so, so that was oh, probably wow. one of the okay. longest books I've read. You know, that's on my <laughs> list. 
Yeah, right. That's <laughs> so, on my list. What's what's the what are the names of the of the two main protagonists in it? Scarlet, uh, Scarlet right? O'Hara, and yeah. Um, the other famous uh, love of yeah. his life. Um, but she's the famous uh, yeah. actress, or I should say the uh, main character in there and going through her life. Very good book. I recall after the recording, it's Rhett Butler, Scarlet's love interest. So imagine you're reading Gone with the Wind. Imagine you haven't started reading it yet. And instead you just flip open the book to, you know, one chapter somewhere in the middle of it. Right. There's probably like a hundred chapters in Gone with Wind, right? I mean, it's huge, right? So, yeah. so you go to one chapter or maybe five, ten pages right in the middle of the book, and you read those five, ten pages. You've never read the beginning or the end. You've only read those ten pages. Would you have any idea what's going on? It'd be pretty hard to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> Would you have any idea whether the characters are making good decisions or bad decisions? You couldn't know. You Why not? Know. Because Why you don't you not know, know the context of what's going on, the situation, the background leading up to that circumstance. You don't know who they are and why they're there, how they're interrelated to everybody. Right. So you need the larger story, right? You need the meta story that those few pages, whatever kind of storyline right there is in, you would need the larger context, some idea of what's mm -hmm. going on in order to judge anything that's going on in that chapter particularly in order to judge the actions of the individuals in the chapter, whether or not they're making good or right decisions. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so imagine uh, that's our life. Right. And imagine all you knew was just, you know, just the few years that you are on the earth, but you don't know anything else. How could you possibly decide what you're supposed to do? Right. What actions are the right actions to do the wrong actions to do in life? But, if your life is part of a much larger narrative, right? If your narrative is part of a much larger grand meta narrative, if you could know what that meta narrative was, what that overarching grand story was, then all of a sudden you'd be able to understand a lot more about who you are, about what it means to live a good life, about what the trajectory of this meta narrative is, and so what your role might be in that meta narrative where you're heading, where you want to head, all of a sudden you'd maybe understand your vocation a whole lot better, right? And the reason uh, why you should be doing the things that you do in life. And so a meta narrative has the ability to infuse your life with meaning. But if there's no meta narrative, right? If we go back to maybe kind of a Sarchian view of things, right? If, if, if existence precedes essence, and there's literally no meta narrative, then that means there is, in a kind of transcendent or cosmic sense, there is literally no story for your life. There's really no reason behind why you're here. And there's no way to tell how you ought to live your life. Right. And then when it comes down to the experiences that you have in your life, right? Go back to your your Gone with the Wind book, the trials and tribulations that might happen in those 10 pages. You'd have no idea how to judge them. Right. But the larger meta narrative would tell you those trials and tribulations, if it's a good author, anyways, right, they would tell you whether or not those were meaningful and how those trials and tribulations that the characters went through served the greater arc of the story. Right. And if it's a good mm -hmm. story, how it served the good ending. And that's ultimately what we would say, like a Christian meta narrative gives. Mm -hmm. Right. It gives gives this larger overarching context to not only my identity and what I should do with my life, but also my experiences. Because then I know that whatever 
experiences I'm going through, whatever pain and suffering I'm going through right now, it's not accidental. It's not pointless. Somehow there's a storyteller that's weaving this into a much larger story. And there's a reason behind it. I might never figure out the reason, you know, this, this side of that, but, but there's a reason behind it. I know there is, if I know the meta narrative. Mm-hmm. In your books, you talked about Solomon. Tell us about who Solomon was and his background and how he looked at life. Because uh, as you said in your book, there are a lot of, you know, some atheists who really enjoy reading it because they found some solace or at least recognition of yeah. resonance in their, in what could be perceived as uh, some common beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the title of my book was your life has meaning. And what the book was, was kind of a meditation, you know, or a commentary on this 3000 year old book uh, written by a Middle Eastern philosopher named Solomon, who says meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Everything under the sun is completely meaningless. And so it's this book that begins with those words. And what's interesting about this, particularly interesting to me as a Christian, is that this book is part of the Christian canon. It's called Ecclesiastes, and it's an Old Testament book. And it's this incredibly, incredibly insightful book. So what you have here is someone that believes in the Christian God before Christ, and he is saying that all things are meaningless. Now, what could he possibly mean? How in the world could Solomon this writer of the Bible say everything is meaningless. So Solomon, traditionally, if you're looking at the, just the biblical accounts, kind of just straight up as, as you read them right off the pages, Solomon was the son of King David, who was kind of a a famous guy, a big guy in the old Testament. And Solomon was incredibly famous for being incredibly wise. So he had this great intelligence And he used this intelligence then to get tons of wealth. He was one of the wealthiest people around at the time to get tons of wives. He was famous for having just tons and tons of wives and concubines. He used this for tons of huge building projects. He used his wisdom to amass tons of knowledge about nature and and animals and things like that. And this is all recorded in the Bible for us in the Old Testament. And so he did all of these things with his life, but he also used all this wisdom to not only uh, chase after all these other things, but also to chase after idols. And so even though he knew that this wisdom that he had received was a gift from God, he instead decided to spend his life chasing after all these things and totally ignore his faith. In fact, reject it and instead chase after idols. Ecclesiastes then, is this book that I think only makes sense if we read it as Solomon as an old man looking back at his life, and he's now realizing what he's done with his life. That by ignoring the meta narrative, by living as if there is no overarching story, his technical term for it is living under the sun. If we're just living as if, as the world kind of reveals itself to us, He says, everything is meaningless. It was completely pointless that I amassed all of this wealth. It's completely pointless that I amassed all this knowledge. It's completely pointless that I amassed all these wives. However you want to view Middle Eastern polygamy at that time, right? I'm just kind of horrible stuff. 
He spent lots of stuff on kind of warmongering things as well. He's just kind of looking at all this and man, like it, it was just all meaningless. Everything I did in my life was meaningless because I was not doing these things as if there was a God who had an overarching story and that had a purpose for me within this story. And so Ecclesiastes is looking back at all of this. And so it's him saying everything is meaningless under the sun. But then there's these transitional moments in the book then when he says, let's remember our creator. And when we remember our creator, all of a sudden everything gets reinfused with this meaning and value. And so I think it's just an incredibly powerful book because you have this, you know, what I would call an inspired writer of the Bible that is saying without God, everything is meaningless. And what's interesting is that's exactly what Sartre says. That's exactly what Nietzsche, uh, an atheistic philosopher, said. Many philosophers uh, agree with this 3,000-year-old Middle Eastern philosopher that everything is meaningless if uh, existence precedes essence. Speaking of Nietzsche, you uh, wrote in your book his madman parable. Can you tell us what that's all about? Because I think that is very interesting. And I think he's sometimes misunderstood <laughs> for the, for God is dead, but can you share that parable? I think there's a lot of wisdom. Yeah. So as far as the kind of diagnosis I'm making that life is meaninglessness, that life is meaningless without a meta narrative, without there being a God, I did not come to this conclusion just because I'm a Christian. So there were, there are many philosophers that have come to this conclusion. And one of the most famous ones to acknowledge this and just kind of openly embrace it and say, well, what are we going to do about this condition was Friedrich Nietzsche. So Nietzsche was a philosopher that lived at the, uh, he especially did a lot of his writings at the end of the 1900 or the end of the 1800s, just kind of right at the turn of the century. And he's famous for popularizing the phrase, God is dead. What's interesting is that he came up with this phrase and made it popular, not because he was trying to convince anyone God is dead. He already assumed that all the intelligentsia and everyone would agree with them. Instead, he came up with this term, God is dead, because he wanted to warn people about what the uh, implications of this were. And the phrase comes up then in a very famous parable that he writes about. The parable comes up in a couple of his works, but the kind of gist of it goes something like this. There's this madman that runs into a marketplace, a town square, and he runs into it in the middle of the day, but he's got a lantern on and he rushes into the crowd and he's running around, running around saying, where's God? Where's God? God is dead. And as he runs into the crowd and says this over and over again, God is dead. We've killed him. Everyone laughs. Everyone around him is laughing at him. The reason they're laughing at him is not because uh, they're laughing at him saying God is dead. They agree with that. They're laughing at him because he thinks this is a problem. Everyone else already agrees that God is dead, but they, they see this guy as crazy for thinking that there's any reason to be alarmed with it. And so the madman goes on, and uh, here's just a couple of lines from what he says. So he says, Uh, So where is God? I will tell you, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it now moving? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? 
Are we not plunging continually backwards, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? And so Nietzsche, this madman, is trying to describe what the implications are that God is dead. And what he's getting at here is the fact that through the the Enlightenment movements that were taking place, the use of God in the sciences and in ethics and in politics, uh, God was just kind of taken out of all those things. There was no longer a need for him, according to kind of Enlightenment thought. And so we don't need God to do politics, right? So we don't need to believe in him anymore. We don't need him to do ethics. Kant and others uh, demonstrated that we can do ethics reasonably without God. We don't need him in the sciences anymore, right? You can be a scientist going about your business without needing God to explain anything. And so God is, for all intents and purposes, dead to us as a culture. But what did we lose when that happened? And Nietzsche's language then is that we have been unchained, right? This earth has been unchained from its sun, and we are now plunging into this continual infinite darkness. And his point here is that we have now taken away the foundation that justified so many of the things that we took for granted. So ethics, for example, how in the world, how in the world do you decide what right and wrong is if there isn't this meta-narrative? right? That we were talking about. If there is no God and so there's no meta-narrative, then how can you know in this moment what you ought to do with your life, right? So we've removed uh, all of these structures and all of these foundational aspects that we need in order to know how to live. And so the point was, is that the madman's supposed to be a prophet. He comes before his time. Everyone's fine with it at that time that God is dead. But Nietzsche was saying, a time is coming, A time is coming when we're going to see how problematic it is that we no longer have God to be the source of our identity, to be the source of our ethics, to be the source of our meaning. We're going to have to somehow try to construct all these things for ourselves. And Nietzsche knew that you just simply can't construct ethics, right? You just can't simply construct meaning. Uh, These are not the types of things that, that you can do on your own. You need a God to do it. As we wrap up today's episode, I recognize that there was a lot covered. People listening have all different spiritual, religious perspectives, and I respect that. If you have any questions that you'd like to ask Luke, please email him. The link will be available below. We will continue next week as we try to find meaning under the sun in everyday life and contemplate that as we work through finding meaning in life and purpose and overall helping this greater meaning to deal with life's struggles, including the battle with fibromyalgia and related problems. Until next week, go Team Fibro.